This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello and welcome to Live and Learn on the Bigger Picture with me, Lim Su Anne. Kristang, a Creole spoken by the Malacca Portuguese community here in Malaysia, has been listed by UNESCO as a severely endangered language. Now, while there have been efforts to preserve and to revive the language, it's undeniable that fewer people are speaking it and even fewer have heard of it. So in conjunction with International Mother Language Day, we're taking a bit of a interesting perspective on this and we want to learn more about this language and why it's important to keep minority languages alive. And joining me on the show to do that is Professor Dr. Stephanie Shamila-Pile from the Faculty of Languages and Linguistics at University of Malaya. And um, Prof. Stephanie has done quite extensive work on the language, so we want to find out all about it today. Thank you so much for joining me today, Prof. Stephanie. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me to speak on something that's very close to my heart, uh, the Kristang language or Malacca Portuguese. Hmm. Now, what can you tell me about the Kristang language itself? Now, I said that it's a Creole hmm. as well. What does that mean? Okay, so this is a kind of a controversial um, name or term mm-hmm. because the term Creole um, tends to have a little bit of a negative connotation. Mm-hmm. Um, people tend to think of a, a Creole. Well, maybe I start with what a Creole might be. You know, is or how people understand Creoles to be. So generally, people would say, "Oh, it's um, a contact language." So which means two people who, who meet each other, putting it very simply, or two groups of people, um, and then they need a common language to communicate with. Now, that's a very simplistic way of looking at it mm-hmm. because there's a bit of a colonial twist to it mm. because often it's the people who've come to conquer you and theirs becomes like the dominant language uh, even though it's not the language of the majority, right? And then you have the language of the locals and or languages of the locals. So what happens is because this new, lang- new language has formed, it's seen as a bastardized version of the colonial language. So mm-hmm. it might be French, it might be Portuguese, it might be English. And so as the language develops though, we have to really look at Creoles as a social process, not just a linguistic process because the language just don't just mix or people don't just decide, oh, I'll take all your vocabulary or majority of your vocabulary, then I'll simplify uh, by using maybe my grammar, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, it's not so simple because as we go along, we meet other people, right? Uh, history changes, politics change, um, e- economy changes. So as we go along... Um, a language like Kristang, which basically came over as um, the Portuguese came to Malacca mm-hmm. in the 16th century, um, and they, they they had people with them on their ships, right? It's not just all Portuguese who came. So the language that came uh, and the language that stayed is not an antique or old form of Portuguese as some people came. It came, it met with so many languages that were in Malacca, mainly Malay, Mm -hmm. because that was the lingua franca, but there were also other languages, um, Indian languages, Chinese languages that were around. But over the years... Uh, more, you know, more contact with local people because Portuguese left, so Portuguese doesn't didn't remain. Mm-hmm. Unlike say in Macau, so this Creole process of Creolization is is not as simple as two languages meeting and then people are trying to find a common uh, language out of these two languages mm-hmm. and that one is more superior than the other. It is more a continual process as in what's happened with uh, Malacca Portuguese. Mm. Yeah. So to say that, for example, it's a mix of Portuguese and Malay, it's mm. too simplistic of It's you. too simplistic, yes. Mm. yes. So how much has that language changed then mm. since 
the from from when it was um, created, yeah. so to speak, right? How much has it evolved over the years? So we don't have uh, very old records, obviously, right, from the 16th century. So we don't actually know exactly how Kristang um, might have uh, been at that time or Malacca Portuguese might have been at that time. But if we look at the, the journey of the Portuguese and they were coming directly from India, at least, before Malacca. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of commonalities that have stayed in the Portuguese um, varieties that have stayed in these, like in India and Sri Lanka, after that in um, Macau, Indonesia as well. Some of them have already uh, disappeared, like the one in Tugu, Indonesia, right? Mm -hmm. So from there, we can see that the commonality suggests to us that what came to Malacca was already um, a different variety of um, Portuguese, mm -hmm. probably not exactly the standard variety that was spoken at that time, if, if you could call it a standard variety. However, there are records of Portuguese being taught in schools or in under, I guess, the missionaries in Malacca at that time. Um, so over time, the changes that have happened, the more recent changes are in terms of, for example, vocabulary. As you can imagine, um, we would have taken on more Malay words, um, actually more English words mm. because the Kristang people or the Malacca Portuguese people um, speak English as well, right? So, and they're more dominant English speakers. So, um, there are a lot of, so vocabulary-wise, there's already been documented uh, loss of words, words that uh, were used, say, were found in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. But when people started doing dictionaries in the 1980s, they couldn't find, people didn't know these words anymore. Or they had um, substituted them with English words or Malay words, yeah. Mm. And as time goes on, I think more and more words will be substituted. And that's very common with us who speak more than one language, mm. you know. And we see that quite a bit with um, BM, for mm. example, when you speak Malay. A lot of the words that we use nowadays, actually, if you look back into the Kamos, you can find... Um, older Malay words, but yes. now we've used sort of an English, uh, anglicised yes. vers version yeah. of it. So I guess it's the same with any language, including um, yeah. Creole. And sometimes there's a throwback to say, hey, we have, we have this word, so uh -huh. why are, are we not using it, you know, as in Malay, for example. So it could be, it, sometimes this is the, the whole social process of languages. People go back to old words that they find or they just substitute it with new words, yeah. Hmm. Now, so... Is this language as old as the Portuguese um, mm. arrival or invasion of Malacca then? So, I mean, it's as old as when it came here and mm -hmm. it started developing, but it is not the same language that would have come, or perhaps then. even languages that would have come. Mm. Uh, there might have been, you know, the Portuguese spoken by the higher ranking officers as opposed to the, the soldiers. But yeah, so there would already have been uh, varieties, you know, uh, that were spoken when, when they came to Malacca. So it's not... What developed in Malacca is not the same as what would have arrived, I guess you could say, in, in uh, 1511 or yeah, mm. after that. You mm. can't just put a timestamp on no, it. No, <laughs> no. I think you have to look at it as a social process. Yeah, Languages are alive. That's why we talk of them dying, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, I, um, now, we've been talking about how this is spoken um, among the Malacca Portuguese mm. community. Are mm. they the only ones who speak Kristang here in Malaysia? And what about outside of Malaysia? Okay, so obviously the, the Portuguese Malacca Portuguese diaspora um, would speak some Portu some Malacca Portuguese, but these would be the older people who have left. Mm. And once people left to go to Australia or Canada or the UK, then the next generation is likely not to have 
to speak that language anymore. It's already happened in Malaysia. Mm -hmm. So you have families that uh, moved away or didn't live in Malacca, where the majority speakers uh, live. So what happened is people switched to mainly to English. Um, so it's also spoken in, in Singapore, of course, I should say that, because um, we have very close connections, right? Um, and the same thing, right? Older speakers would might might still be able to speak it but there's been a revival by youth there to to start learning the language again so as a learned language rather than being passed on from generation to generation but who knows so this new young generation might just um, start this revival of passing it to their their children and so on yeah now, before we go for a quick break, um, Prof. Stephanie, I want to ask you one more thing, which was um, how, from the start of our conversation, right, I've introduced the Creole as Kristam, yes. but you've also um, <laughs> s- described it as the Malacca Portuguese mm. Creole. And mm. I know that in some uh, some cases, it's also been referred to as Papia Kristam. Why are there so many names yes. to it? Um, that's a really interesting question. And you can see me checking myself and using Malacca Portuguese. So um, linguistically, that's what I would like to use, Malacca mm-hmm. Portuguese, to identify as a variety of Portuguese, as a legitimate language form of Portuguese, um, the different the different terms. So, Christang means Christian, right? It comes from the Portuguese word meaning Christian. And there are documents from the 1880s that already uh, that show or suggest that that people from Malacca were saying that I speak Christang language. Mm. So, Papia Christang, right? Papia speak Christang. Um, but then there are other people who say, but it means Christian. So, how can you say I'm speaking Christian? Christang is like a three in one term. It means Christian, mm-hmm. and that 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 terminology or that meaning is actually the least used now because people would say I'm Catholic or I'm, I'm, you know, I've maybe changed my religion or something. The other two meanings are still used, especially within the community mm-hmm. colloquially. Like I'm Kristang or mm-hmm. Genti Kristang. I'm, I'm a Kristang person and I speak Kristang or I speak Papia Kristang. Yeah, so that's... But linguistically, I'd like to not use the word Creole but to, le- to, to have to legitimately use Malacca Portuguese as a variety of Portuguese. Yeah. Mm. All right. We'll go for a quick break now, Prof. And when we come back, you know, we'll dive more into the revival of the language as well. Um, I'm speaking today to Professor Dr. Stephanie Shamlapile from the Faculty of Languages and Linguistics at University Malaya. And we are talking about Kristang, or also known as Malacca Portuguese. And we'll be right back after a quick break. So keep it here on Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Live and Learn on the Bigger Picture with me, Lim Su An. On the show with me today is Professor Dr. Stephanie Shamla Pillay from the Faculty of Languages and Linguistics at University Malaya. And she's joining me today in conjunction with International Mother Language Day because we are talking about a very specific, severely endangered language here in Malaysia, and that is Malacca Portuguese, or also known as Kristang. Now, before the break, we were talking about the language, how it came to be here in Malaysia, and how the creation of a Creole really is much more like a social process than purely a linguistics one. And that's one that I definitely want to get into a bit more later. But, you know, Prof. Stephanie, as I mentioned several times already, UNESCO's Atlas of the World's Languages in Danger lists Chris Dung as severely endangered. What does that mean in terms of how much it's spoken in the community? Yeah, um, this, these categories are actually quite important for us to understand. So when something is severely endangered, um, the, the good news is it's still alive. <laughs> but the bad news is it means that, that 
the speakers are mainly older speakers. So in terms of um, like a Portuguese, you I would say they are mainly fifty five and above. Mm. Uh, and and every year I should up that to you know sixty and above. And and many of the older fluent speakers have obviously passed on. Mm. Now that is one. Number two, it means that there are. Uh, less and less younger speakers and one of the reasons for this is that there is um, very little intergenerational transmission so from grandparents to parents par- to grandchildren parents to children um, and when you don't have that where are the young generation going to learn uh, to speak the language mm-hmm. right yeah so that is why it's considered to be severe, severely endangered and really the only the one of the the, the sort of the great thing about the Portuguese settlement in Malacca um, is that it's a self-contained village of mm-hmm. mainly Malacca Portuguese people and their partners, their spouses, who may be from different um, ethnic groups, but also tend to pick up uh, Malacca Portuguese because in that village you can still hear the language. And so even if a young child of 10, 12 doesn't speak the language fluently, but at least they are hearing it around them, they can pick up, they, they understand the words. All is not lost. Mm-hmm. How Ever, without this, in, without families passing on the language to their children and grandchildren, um, it's it's really a red lights are popping up everywhere. I would say, yeah. Hmm. Exposure is good, but it's not going to be enough to keep yeah. it alive. Mm-hmm. What's contributed to that decline? The fact that you see less intergenerational transmission of it. Yeah, I mean because families, you know, you you have of course you have like big families that live together. So if your grandparents are still alive, then the chances are that you would be speaking to them mm. um, in in like a Portuguese and a mixture of English, Malay. But as um, the youth leave for better education, um, jobs especially, and um, they marry outside or they, they go to big cities to live. So then you don't have that family unit anymore together. People come back for festivals, yes, but then you're not, you don't have that daily routine, you know, you don't speak to your parents every day and so on. So economy, yeah, social mobility, yeah. And also the fact that unfortunately or fortunately English, I would say unfortunately, right? Um, that, <laughs> see, my Freudian slip. Um, English is equated with bet, everything better, mm-hmm. yeah. So and that means that a lot of families switch to English, um, especially those who left, especially those who were more educated. But that you can also see that in the settlement now and Malacca in general. Hmm. Now, some people have described it as a dying language. Hmm. Do you think such language is useful? Does it galvanize people to take action, or do you think that it just leads to the the kind hmm. of thought that ah, oh well, it's dying? Then you know, there's nothing much to do about it. Yeah, I think it can go really go both ways and depends um, on what's happening with the people, with where they're living. I mean, if you are a kind a community that's uh, generally living from, you know, hand to mouth, mm-hmm. that's going to be your priority, right? But in the case of the Malacca Portuguese uh, community, um, the good thing is that um, it has actually galvanized them. I see the youth... Um, say 10, 15 years ago to now, I can see the difference in how the youth are taking ownership of the language, of their culture. Um, and 
and making it as part, even part of their business. So then that's a good thing, you know, where, where language and culture is also part of your livelihood. Um, and I see that with within the community representatives as well, in terms of coming up with cultural groups, because then you are using the language to sing, to perform, and you'll be speaking to each other in the language. And we've got three very, um, three, three dance troops that I can mention, cultural troops uh, led by Marina Denker, another one by Gerard de Costa, and another one by Sarah Santa Maria. Mm-hmm. They're doing great jobs. So this kind of like this, this when everyone was saying, oh, you know, language dying, nobody's speaking it anymore. They said, no, we mm-hmm. do speak it and we can showcase our language um, and in, in other ways, right? Uh, so that's what they have done. And Sarah actually even teaches the language. Mm. Uh, she's worked with me and our team, you know, the team from the sat- the settlement and also from University of Malaya. We've worked together to produce materials. So Sarah uses uh, the book, for example, to teach adults and children, both in person and online. So the pandemic was good in that way because people came on board online. And, and that's the way that I can see um, this whole endangerment thing is actually working well for the community because they're taking ownership of their language and saying other people cannot keep claiming that our language is dead mm-hmm. uh, or make up, you know, make up words and so on. We will take ownership of our language. Yeah. Hmm. Now, you mentioned that, you know, there are um, books about this that it's being taught. I, mm. I forgot to ask earlier, is Malacca Portuguese a largely spoken language or a written one? Yeah, so now, obviously, it's a more written language, right? So lang- the, when we are multilingual, our different languages, like, we, we kind of compartmentalise them, right? We mm-hmm. use Malay for this, we use English for this, and we use different kinds of English, different kinds of Malay for mm-hmm. different things. So some are spoken, some are written. And so with um, Malacca Portuguese these days, the written form you can find on social media, right? Mm-hmm. Posts and text messages, um, but not really in actual written form because it's not taught formally. Yeah. Um, so when we had to do the book, a lot of um, conversations we had to have with community representatives. How should we spell it? And mm. how should we, you know, uh, represent? The, how should it look like? What should we call it? Even <laughs> yeah. So these were debates. We had very interesting debates. Um, still things that we should be resolving. But at least the community came on board and had their voices heard. Uh, perhaps previous to this, their voices were not heard as much because people were making decisions for them Mm. yeah and uh, so I think we need to shift away from this kind of I know best um, attitude especially Mm -hmm. from researchers academics uh, policy makers but go go down to the community talk to the community yeah Mm. so the challenges are almost twofold right because on the one hand you're trying to preserve trying to revive the language but on the other hand you have to figure out a way to to put it in a written form Mm. so that you can continue those efforts Yes, exactly. And I think this is the, the issue with a lot of languages. Even languages that people claim are oral, you'll find that somewhere along the line, people mm-hmm. did write to each other. Mm-hmm. How they wrote it, what script they wrote it, is where we need to go into and to find out why did they, they use this spelling system. Times change. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yes, it's, it's a challenge because a writing system is not just about, uh, oh, I want to standardise it this way. It has... It has cultural elements to it. So you, so people might say, oh, no, I want Malacca Portuguese to look like Portuguese, European mm. Portuguese, for example. But then you might say, 
practically, mm, <laughs> that may not be the way to go mm-hmm. um, because we in Malaysia are more familiar with the English writing system and yes. the Malay writing system. I'm, I'm talking about the spelling system, for example. So if you do something that's totally alien, then you have to talk, think about, is this really going to be practical? Yeah. So these are conversations that we really need to have to, as you said, to balance between, you know, keep preserving and also thinking about practicalities. Yeah, mm. And that's another link from language to culture, mm. right? Because it links to your local culture. And it's interesting how you mentioned that there are dance troops that mm. are also incorporating the language into it. Tell me more about that, because that's something that I think for a lot of us, it's hard to make that link. Yes. Um, and I should add food to that too. <laughs> yeah. So um, with the dance troops, because they're singing in Malacca Portuguese, they, mm. they are... Um, also reviving, you know, traditional dances. Uh, some of them were brought by, were only introduced in the 1950s, really. But then there are also those that are composed by, you know, um, very sort of doyens of, of the culture who have passed on. So those original compositions and dance dances are also being performed. And I think that's important. Uh, it's really one way to introduce, especially the young people, uh, and they need to to bring it on so at least it won't die in many com- other communities like Indonesia mm-hmm. even in Macau the language really lives on in in theatre in drama in music yeah um, and unfortunately not no more in uh, conversation ex- for example for Tugu Indonesian uh, Tugu Portuguese which is which was spoken in Indonesia and Macau Patua is also on its last legs Mm. Mm. Any particular challenges that you've observed when it comes to current efforts in keeping the language alive? Mm. I think funding is a big one because, um, you know, people have day jobs, people have other priorities. Mm -hmm. So I'm fortunate that the University of Malaya has community engagement funds. So apart from the research funds that we have received to work on the language, we also had... um, funds to go beyond just grabbing and going, you mm. know, grabbing the data and then and doing um, linguistic analysis, publishing. So we work with the community. That's how we came up with um, the book. But before that, we actually had a CD. Uh, i tell you how old it is. <laughs> it's an audio CD of Catholic prayers in like a Portuguese. Oh, wow. And it was really, I had very little to do uh, in the sense that the community took over to record, to to search for, you know, which one was the correct version of this prayer and songs. And I think it was the first time for many people to hear those hymns again. So that was uh, the first effort. And then, um, of course, the book, um, which we in- incorporated cultural elements, so including like recipes, you know. In, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> like people can learn how to book. cook oh, yes, um, traditional course. foods. Yes. Yes, and then we um, have an app which is still kind of work in progress. A lot of tweaking needs to go into that. It's like a dictionary app, so easy to find words in Eng- from English to like Portuguese and vice versa. We've also come up with children's books. So here we got the children involved. Mm. So all these things require funding or require p- time. So mm. it's funding, time, commitment. Like it takes a lot of time to sit down and work out these things. Um, and not, not many people have that time to do this, you know, mm-hmm. because of their own commitments. And often researchers as well um, can help by by trying to source together with the community for these funds. So I would say the main challenges would be 
time constraints and also co- time commitment and funding. Funding is a big thing. Like who's going to help publish the books or the materials? Yeah, the book that we have, Nina Boboy, is based on a halalabai, mm-hmm. um, and it's the children's drawings that we illustrations that we have in the book. So and it's trilingual. So we're making use of the multilingual resources of the children because they know Malay, they know English, and so if we write the Kristang verses, they would be able to make out oh, wow. the words. Yeah, and to see their drawings there, I think it's a big like wow for them as well. Yeah. Mm. I mean, as much as this is a passion project for, and this is very close to everyone's mm. heart in the community, it still takes time and yes. it takes money. Like you say, everyone deserves to be properly compensated mm. for it. Mm. Um, if I may ask a more personal um, question, why was this something that you wanted to do? You know, why is this important to you? Okay, so yes, it's 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 personal because my maternal side has Malacca Portuguese roots. So, like my grandparents spoke Malacca Portuguese, um, but having moved, have not not because they didn't live in Malacca mm-hmm. and uh, they grew up. My 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 mom and her family grew up speaking English. So even for them, it's kind of a nost- kind of going back. Um, to learn, relearn what was your heritage language. I started out, I mean, as a researcher, interested in the the linguistic system, especially <laughs> the sound system. I'm such a boring academic. But then I realised I'm doing this um, and I'm finding these out, but what can I do with all these resources? I got funding to document and archive mm-hmm. and I'm like, okay, but why am I doing all this? So from there, I started talking to um, you know people I was working with in the Malacca, among the Malacca Portuguese community, and they said, "Hey, you know, we the prayers came in. Then how about a book?" And then that's how we we worked it out. It wasn't easy. It took time. Yeah. So that's so it's personal because at least I'm helping um, my community. Part of you know I'm, I have, I feel I'm part of the community. And um, secondly, I think it will also trigger other people in other communities to do similar things. A lot of people have said, oh, yes, we can also come up with some books that represent communities. A colleague of mine has worked on uh, uh, Jakun stories with um, the Jakun community in a school in Pahang. Mm -hmm. And so it's nice to see representations of uh, stories from indigenous and minority communities because we don't see enough representation in uh, education in in materials textbooks yeah people haven't even heard of some of these names uh, like like a Portuguese or Kristang, mm-hmm. right? Or mm-hmm. or uh, some of our other indigenous communities, yeah. So I realised awareness level is very low. So this personal project led me to do other things um, to create awareness for our indigenous communities as well. Yeah. Mm. To play the devil's advocate, <laughs> Prof. Stephanie, some people might say, well, there's no economic value in preserving a minority language mm. like this when it's so endangered, when so few people speak it. Why preserve it? Okay, yeah. So there, there is a, actually there's, there is economic value, although we would say we shouldn't be just thinking about economic value, <laughs> yes. right? Yeah, but yeah, it's it's bread and butter nowadays. Um, yeah. So when you when one thing is with a lot of languages, a lot of information, a lot of indigenous knowledge, native knowledge is contained within the language. This could be about plants and animals, uh, planting systems that you know we in the environment. So a lot of that could be lost. It may not be in the vocabulary per se it could be but it also could be in the stories in the healing rituals all of which would be done in the native language right mm-hmm. um, so that those are things which are lost and someone else will come come on and say oh i know this plant is like i can use this to cure cancer or something and that's a whole loss 
uh, not just to the community but to the to the nation. Yeah, um, we also with language comes culture. They they go together. Food culture, mm-hmm. um, dance culture, and all these things. When you when you put them together as a package, that's where micro tourism can come in. Um, and we've done that with the Malacca Portuguese, where we've brought um, uh, visitors oh, wow. to spend time with the children and the elders. And the children love absolutely love working with um, adults, where they teach you maybe a dance drama, and that's how they interact with you. It's good both ways. And people can pay pay the community, right, for the food, for the whatever um, um, that you're, as a package. Let, rather than let a third person, um, a third party, mm-hmm. uh, tourists, a, tour, tour guides, what they do is they come in a bus, they just take pictures, they mm-hmm. they don't interact, they nev- they don't even meet the people, and then they just, just gawk at them, like, especially during Christmas, it's kind of horrible. And then they just go back into their buses. They don't actually know anything about the community. Mm-hmm. So this kind of micro-tourism, is something that I think we really need to develop. Um, I see some young people doing it on Instagram, for example, you know, come on a tour to with this indigenous community. Uh, my hope is let the in let the the community manage it. Yes. Yeah. So that's that's what we wanted. So after this, they they can do it on their own because you've given them like the the bones and we've worked with them on. Okay, this is what you can do. So we've had cook, cooking classes as well. So we bring a bunch of people, you know, um, and this is the recipe. Okay, go <laughs> and then and and they learn how to cook, but they also learn the names of the ingredients, but. As they do it, they're talking to people from the community. I think mm. that's the important thing, right? Um, these are not monuments for you to just take pictures. Not with. for you to gawk at. No. So you talk to them. You say, "Hey, no, my mom would put put this, you know, in my in my um, curry or whatever." Yeah. So you talk to the people. You talk to the youngsters, and you give the community some. You know, they they make some money, but more importantly, they also feel pride in their language, in their culture. Hey, these people are coming, and they want to know more mm-hmm. about me my culture yeah hmm. you mentioned um, that you shy away from the use of the term Creole mm. because it has a negative connotation yeah. and in, in doing my research on this I have seen that quite mm. a lot you know across different cultures yeah. it's mentioned that if you say it's a Creole it doesn't command mm. as much respect do you find that that perception here with Christang or with Malacca Portuguese I think it's just like lay, layman's notion of Creole is t- just tends to be negative so mm-hmm. because of you know um, because it's just like it's not the standard form of the dominant language. But after time, I think Malacca Portuguese people have, have realized that this is their language. It is a valid language. Um, when we work together, we can see there is a system to your grammar. There is a system to your spelling, actually. And that makes it valid. It is a language as in any other language, yeah. Mm. What would you like to see, especially, you know, taking a bigger picture perspective from policymakers, right? Mm. What would you like to see to better protect and support efforts to preserve minority languages like Malacca Portuguese? Because, unfortunately, Malaysia doesn't always have a good track record when it comes to preserving our indigenous cultures. Yeah, I, um, I think there's more kind of um, more recognition awareness now but these are these tend to come from associations or uh, groups like Pusaka Mm -hmm. you know and um, or NGOs like in in Sabah and Sarawak and that shouldn't be the case Um, it should be a national policy because we have what 131 32 languages um, and 80% of them are indigenous languages Mm -hmm. 70% of them are considered to be endangered so if we, we're not even properly documenting, we keep talking about this documentation of Malaysian languages, 
but I've yet to see anything put up thus far. So a lot of our languages are being documented by outsiders. So we do need a policy that says, okay, we need to, to start uh, documenting our languages so that in the future, if we want to revive or we want to go back to it, we want to offer these as elective subjects, we have um, a database, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, why we are constantly saying we want to offer so many languages as electives, but apart from Iban, uh, Kadazan, Samai, uh, which are taught in the education system, you don't really see these languages um, offered at university level, for example. If I want to learn Samai or Tamiya or Melaka Portuguese, I can't. Mm-hmm. Melaka Portuguese is not even taught in the Portuguese settlement, which has a secondary school mm-hmm. in the settlement. Wow. Yeah, so, or, or brought up. I think it's not even brought up because it would say, oh, you're, don't speak that because then you'll make your English bad or, or things. This kind mm. of negative things. If policymakers have a proper structured policy, I think this would also help to dispel um, all these negative notions about um, Creoles and minority languages and, yeah. It's levels of misconceptions mm. all the way from the bottom to the top, yes. isn't it? Yeah, unfortunately, yes. <laughs> and um, I guess uh, to wrap up our discussion, um, you know, if someone is interested in learning more about the language, about the community and their culture, I guess what's a good starting point? Um, I think go to the Portuguese settlement, you know, go meet the people and um, you'll be surprised that, you know, people will be happy to talk to you about their language, about their culture. Um, treat it as a living entity, as part of the community, as, as with any other language. Um, and remember that when we celebrate International Mother Day, um, Mother Language Day, it really, it, it has sad beginnings of people who lost their lives fighting for their language. So I think it, that really, that, that makes us want to stress um, the fact that, you know, languages are very close to people's hearts and being their souls um, and not something to be taken lightly. Yeah. Mm. And what do you see for the future of Melaka Portuguese here in Malaysia? I am very hopeful because of the way I see the youth coming together and the way that people, the people that I've mentioned earlier, you know, that, that are doing and working with other people now even mm-hmm. more. And, and the fact that they are now becoming the focal point not outsiders, not me, not not you know some researcher somewhere else, but the the people in the community themselves are becoming the focal point, and that's that's that gives me so much hope. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today, Prof. Stephanie. Thank you so much, and Bongdia International Dilingu Mai. I've been speaking to Prof. Professor Dr. Stephanie Shamila Pillay from the Faculty of Languages and Linguistics at University of Malaya. And we've been talking about Kristanga, also known as Malacca Portuguese, in conjunction with International Mother Language Day. If you missed any part of today's show or any previous Live and Learn episodes, you can download our podcast on bfm.my or on the BFM app. I'm Lim Suan and this has been Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.